Hello, and welcome aboard the Fully Scored Express. Stopping at Interview Central, Analysis Avenue, and finally arriving at our destination, Band Mastermind Boulevard. I'm your conductor, Matthew Frost, so tickets ready please. Choo choo. Today's episode has absolutely no connection with trains, but perhaps you might be listening from one. Or maybe you're listening in the car or on your daily walk. No matter where you're listening, we've once again got a podcast packed to the brim. Later on in the pod, we welcome back legendary Hollywood composer Bruce Broughton, who's going to be talking us through his piece, Covenant, one of my absolute favourites. But before we welcome back Bruce, please let me introduce our interviewee for today. Bandmaster, concert pianist, composer and international staff songster accompanist, Richard Phillips. In our interview, we had a chat about all of those things. Hope you enjoy. So Richard, thank you ever so much for joining us today again on Fully Scored. It's a real pleasure to have you here. How are you keeping? Doing well. It's been an interesting time this past year and uh, spent a lot of time at the house and um, uh, listening to uh, listening to podcasts and meetings online and uh, uh, recording a lot of stuff for online purposes, uh, trying to help people uh, in their in their own core worship um, the best way I can. Right. And uh, you mentioned a little bit about your work there. We'll, uh, we'll jump back shortly in a second and talk about your early years. But first of all, um, I believe you're the SPNS Music General Manager. Uh, what does that uh, role entail in day-to-day life, usually? You may well ask. Uh, and when I know, I'll let you know. It's quite well known that back in the old days, SPNS didn't make a lot of money. Um, and, uh, and when it was taken over as part of the SAPCOL setup. Um, we needed to find a way, or the manager needed to find a way on how to get SPNS to be profitable. So what it's, it started to buy up similar companies. And, uh, and as SPNS was publishing Salvation Army's music, we thought that um, other music brass band publishers uh, might be useful who were making money. So um, they bought... Uh, R. Smith, which is quite a famous uh, music publisher. Eric Ball used to uh, be part of the R. Smith uh, setup at one time. Um, and so after that, uh, just a few years ago, um, we kept on expanding and we bought another company called uh, Studio Music. And, uh, and finally, uh, we bought a company called Lush Life. Lush Life is a big band, jazz and does all the uh, Sinatra covers or big band and uh, and so that was a purchase uh, that we made at the same time as studio music um, so we've got four elements all produce music um, Andrew is looking after the Salvation Army element of that I look after studio music and the others on that um, I also look after um, World of Sound and the World of Sound is a, is a renowned uh, recording department and uh, they do some fantastic recordings and uh, and so very pleased to be able to look after that and uh, and also um, World of Brass uh, who sponsor many of the, uh, the brass band events uh, up and down the country uh, they've just launched a new uh, Spotify version of brass band music 
called Wob Play, and uh, that was launched uh, just just uh, towards the end of last year on September the third, and, uh, and that's going great guns at the moment, and uh, and so I look after that. And we also have a, a a copyright expert who deals with the Salvation Army and all the studio music copyrights that we that we have to deal with. And uh, you're coming to us today via Zoom uh, from sunny Kettering, or as it's pronounced by the locals, I believe, Kettering, uh, or somewhere near there. Um, but I believe you haven't always lived in Kettering. Could you tell us a little bit about where you where you grew up, first of all? I grew up at a, a very lovely court called Chatham, uh, in, down in Kent, in the Midway Towns, and uh, that uh, gave me a very good grounding on music uh, in terms of both Salvation Army and, and and everything else that I've done. Uh, yeah, the core there, uh, grew up in the VIP band, uh, in the singing company. My dad brought home a cornet, spare cornet they had there when I was four years old. And uh, so I just played my first notes there, played my first cornet solo at the core. Um, so transitioned into the uh, senior sections, uh, was the deputy songster leader for a little while. Uh, then I was the deputy bandmaster, and then um, I had spent a couple of years at uh, Hendon Court uh, before going back to Chatham, um, where I was the bandmaster for another seven years. And then after that, uh, I moved to Enfield and took over from, from Jim Williams, and I have the privilege of uh, conducting Enfield Band. So I lived in just North London, uh, not too far from Enfield. Uh, and then uh, moved up uh, the A1 a little bit to St Albans. And then uh, we moved up to Peterborough uh, for, a, for a year or so. And then ended up in Kettering. So it's been a bit of a, bit of a journey. But I've uh, been at Kettering now for the last uh, uh, 17 years. Fantastic stuff. And uh, you mentioned there that uh, in your early days you had a cornet brought home to you, but most people also know you as a fantastic pianist. Did you also start to learn the piano at the same time as the cornet, or did that come earlier or later? Um, I suppose we, we always had a piano in the house. Mum played, Dad played. Uh, Dad played for the Songsters for a little while, Mum played for the Home League. And, uh, and I was very interested, and I used, they used to t teach me one-finger tunes. And, uh, and I remember uh, playing uh, in my infant school. Uh, they had a little organ in the corner, funnily enough. And, um, and I played When He Cometh, uh, one finger version. Uh, and then uh, parents thought that uh, by the age of seven, I ought to be having piano lessons. So I started formal piano lessons at seven. Um, uh, when I was 11, uh, I went to the... Um, Kent uh, Music School um, on a Saturday morning. It was a Saturday morning school, and uh, all my lessons there, piano lessons. I had, I started having trumpet lessons then, um, and uh, that was my formative years before uh, Royal College of Music uh, when I was eighteen. Excellent. And uh, when you came out of college, uh, career-wise, where did your life take you at that point? Yeah. Well, before you go to college, uh, you're told that you're concert pianist material because you're normally the best in the county or wherever you've come from, you know. And then you join everybody else who's the best in their county and the best in their town. And, you know, they all end up better than you. 
know. So my, my kind of ambition of being a concert pianist thought, well, it, it waned. And what I wanted to become was a conductor of a show in the West End. Um, I still have a yearning of that now. You know, that's how deep it was. And I just wanted, oh, I wish I could get in the West End, wish I could, you know, start off as a kind of rehearsal pianist for a show. Because I love tunes. I love show songs. Uh, I love, you know, I was, I was conduct, I was doing a little bit of that on a, on an amateur level, um, quite a bit of that uh, during college, um, getting kind of, you know, shows under my belt, um, and and that's that's the way I would have liked it. But so uh, I left college in July, June, July, and six months later, uh, I heard of a an opening in music editorial department, and uh, I auditioned there. Ray Bowes auditioned me. Um, I had to score the tune of Trenton and uh, for my audition, and uh, he gave me the job. So that was that. And I believe when you went into music editorial that first uh, at that time, you were appointed as the first non-officer uh, to be head of the department. Uh, how did that feel to sort of take on that role and those responsibilities? Um, that, that, was after, that was after a few years. Um, I joined editorial in December 84, uh, and I became its head in 94. So, uh, yes, um, I took over from Trevor Davis. Um, Trevor took um, over from Robert Redhead as the uh, as the head of music, music secretary. Um, Trevor was at that time head of music editorial. Um, so I was the, the senior editor at the time. Um, and so... If there was going to be a non, if there was going to be a non-officer to do the job, I was going to do it. Um, but you know, that was that was the big question whether whether there was going to be another officer. Um, but uh, I felt very privileged and very honoured uh, to have that responsibility. Um, and my first kind of port of call was, I just hope I can do it. You know, I don't want to let anybody down. You know, uh, and I didn't want that after year or two um they've made a mistake here you know um but uh, i took it very seriously i was very proud uh and loved that job um doing it again now but uh, just slightly differently uh but yeah i had uh, very i had uh, six very happy years as head of editorial and uh and um i you know maintain it was a, a privilege for me to, to have that position. Fantastic. And just to jump back a little bit now to your piano playing again, um, most people will know that you are the current uh, pianist for the ISS uh, and have also been previously for a number of years. How do you approach playing as an accompanist different to that of a solo concert pianist? Um, I'm very comfortable with that. Um, I feel like I like the deflection of not being in the limelight, um, I like that a lot. Um, so when you're a soloist, you know you are the focus of attention. When you're a accompanist, you're there in a support role. And um, I, if I can get through a weekend without people kind of um, glancing across to me because of a negative aspect of my playing <laughs> or something like that, then I'm pleased. You can you can really um, change the way people sing from sitting at the piano and the way you play and uh, so it's, it's quite an influential position in that uh, you know if you play in a certain way through the introduction 
um, that will be kind of carried on uh, in the in the way the group sings naturally. Um, and if you're more aggressive than percussive, then the group will normally respond to that, you know. And um, so, yeah, you're you're a very influential person. Uh, I like that. It's a, it's a role that I I enjoy. Uh, and uh, enjoyed for uh, 20 years. I'm not sure how many people might know this, but you're also part of another staff section for a while and a cornet player in the ISB. Uh, what was that like? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess people would uh, would forget that. But uh, I did a... Um, I, I came... I joined the band in March because I was... I was working in music editorial. Ray Bowes was the head of music editorial. Peter Aiding was also in music editorial. And Peter, this was before Peter went into training. So the natural progression was Peter was going into training at the end of the season and I was going to start September as the piano soloist. That was the, that was the plan. Um, and so I joined, my first, my first uh, Wednesday night it was, was at Greenford of all places. And that was my first, uh, and we played the March Greenford. Uh, that was the world premiere of that March, Norman Bearcroft March. Um, and then I did a uh, couple of weekends away. Uh, one was at Norwich. Um, I've forgotten the name of the uh, the other one. Uh, and then I did a Royal Albert Hall, and we played Elsa's Procession to the Cathedral that year, and also. We did a recording, uh, which was called The Great Salvation War. That was my few months in the ISB. Then we had the summer break. And then I went to one rehearsal in September. Um, and then a, a position came up in the ISS. The piano position came up. And uh, Norman knew about me. He knew who I was. Uh, and, and he said, he came to see Ray Bowes. And, and Norman said to Ray, look, my need is greater than yours. I need Richard for the ISS. And uh, Ray was just so gracious and uh, he allowed me the choice. So I thought about it. I knew exactly what I was going to do as soon as he, as soon as he asked me. Uh, but I, I kind of did the, did the thing of taking my time and sleeping on it overnight. So I went in to see Ray the next day. He said, have you had a chance to think? Yeah, thought about it. So what, what do you want to do? So I said, well, I'd really like to join the ISS. I think that's got the best you know, opportunity for me as a pianist. He knew that uh, I would pick the ISS, but he was very gracious, very lovely about it. And uh, the very next Wednesday, um, I was there at rehearsal, uh, you know, and, and sitting in what I think is the dream chair for a pianist in the Salvation Army. I don't think it gets better than, um, than you know, accompanying the best choir in the Salvation Army, playing the most difficult piano music that uh, that is published by the Salvation Army and written for Salvationists. So it's, it's you know, that was that was my dream job. So that's the story of how you turned to the dark side. No, <laughs> <laughs> so again, there are so many uh, different things we can speak about to you, but another aspect of your musical life I'd just like to touch upon, and uh, you mentioned it at the very beginning, is that you were bandmaster at Enfield Sizzle, and you took over from uh, bandmaster James Williams. Now, anyone that knows Salvation Army brass bands, they're big, big boots to fill. How did you feel going into that position and knowing that, 
you know the standards that you had to to keep up there yeah i, I was nervous uh but again felt very honored um and when i looked at principal cornet you know david dawes was sitting there i looked at principal trombone andrew justice uh hilton patterson was there um gary chaundy was on baritone and uh keith was on um euphonium and uh you know it was good players in that band and i'd grown up with kaleidoscope you know, and listening to that iconic record thinking wow you know and there i was i was the bandmaster of enfield band so i was just hoping that i could uh keep this hungry band satisfied with the music i chose and the knowledge that i have to to impart you know and uh you know what am i going to say to the best cornet player in the salvation army to improve his playing you know it's it's ridiculous really but you kind of as you get into it you you You've got to go into it not looking back. You can't look back. Um, although Jim was, you know, there for quite a long time. It was all the time I was there. Jim was sitting in band practices, listening to my band practices. He was sitting in this meeting on Sunday morning and evening, you know, listening to everything I do. And you know, he wasn't scared to comment on on things either. Um, but uh, I knew that I just had to do my thing, and uh, and I hope that. Uh, you know what I brought to the party was was of was was good and uh, produced a couple of CDs with uh, with Enfield Joyous Song and uh, Eternal Brass um, and uh, and I, uh, that was another poignant moment um, because that recording Eternal Brass uh, won the uh, Brass Band World CD of the year and first time a core band had ever achieved that. Excellent. And uh, yeah, that recording, Eternal Brass, of uh, fantastic recording, great record on there. I love listening to that. Um, so I guess the final aspect of your sort of musical life that I'd like to touch upon, uh, again, equally significant, is uh, your composition. I, I think it would be a fair statement to say that you're a real tunesmith when it comes to your writing. You know exactly how to pen a melody. One only has to listen to Church Brief, for example. What, in your opinion, makes a good tune? <laughs> that's the million dollar question and uh if if i knew that i'd be a rich man uh but you've got to go with your your musical senses um i i try to write music that has direction um any piece i write there needs to be a higher point uh and then so there's a direction in the in the shape of the tune um in the when it comes to Salvation Army tunes, you've got to be subservient to the words, and uh, so I've always preferred to have the words first, so I could really kind of you know follow the shape of the words, support the words uh, through through the melodic line. That does, however, uh, restrict you, and so if you have a freedom to to write whatever you like. Um, then it's up to the kind of the lyricist to kind of write something that sits on top of that. Uh, and when I found this kind of um, freedom, when I started pushing um, harmony in different directions to what I would normally do, you know, I discovered certain directions that I could do things. Um, 
and, and, and this is the learning process about composing. Um, the more you develop, the more you kind of find things that you can do, routes that you can go and find a smooth way through there, you know. Um, and so I began then to, to kind of go into different areas, jump into keys that I probably wouldn't have done, um, which gave you a whole load of new opportunities um, to, to work with once you kind of go into that, that direction. And um, and so, you know, I've, I've had, um, you know, I've, because you're sitting in music editorial, you're exposed to almost every composer that submits music to you. So, you know, I was looking at Eric Ball scores, I was looking at Ray Boses, Norman Bearcroft, Ned Ballantyne, um, all these influential Salvation Army composers. I was looking at their scores, I was looking at the scoring, I was looking at the harmonies, feeling my way through. Um, and, and, you know, gradually, uh, almost subliminally, it, it rubs off on you, you know, and, and you kind of, you know, you, you see you see something, you take on board, you try it, it works, and then you take another offshoot of that. So there's kind of, it's it's a, an ever-growing uh, repertoire of places to go, and that shapes your compositions. And uh, we're coming to the end of our more serious questions for this interview now, but I think it would be remiss um, to talk about your composition and not to talk about uh, the four choral symphonies that you've written recently for the ISS and uh, we could talk in great detail for hours about these I'm sure and maybe do a, a whole episode on them but just very briefly uh, could you tell us about where the idea for these monumental uh, vocal works came from? Well the idea was was uh, set before me uh, in, in two people really Firstly, uh, Robert Redhead wrote a pastoral symphony for brass band, and uh, and I think that told me a couple of things. Uh, it told me that this that a four movement piece of music uh, could work in the army. Um, you know, we, we have a kind of a, a tolerance of for a big piece, fifteen minutes, something like that. You know, we're not talking about a Mahler symphony lasting an hour. You know. After 15 minutes, people start to get a bit restless, army audiences do. So that's the kind of appreciated length of a, of a big piece. Um, so, and Robert uh, kind of so set that uh, as a, as a you know, template. Um, and then RSA, he wrote a piece of music called the Childhood Suite. And that again is four movements, but this time for piano and choir. So they those two, elements told me that this this could work we were we were it, i think it was the, it was the first time we went to um the symphony hall um to do the council's festival um so symphony symphony hall um kind of start to kind of have a you know a resonance about it um and so i thought that uh, um i'd do a four movement symphony um, following roughly the same shape as a, you know, a symphony, symphonic work um, and you know if I could get it concise enough um, uh, then it should work and uh, Dorothy she's been she's been very encouraging to me as a composer and um, so I did this submitted the choral symphony uh, got good feedback from Dorothy and and to and from the ISS and um, yeah, without that, without that encouragement from Dorothy and the ISS, uh, you know, 
it's always nice to say when you hear, oh, let's have another one, Rich, let's have another one. So I did I did another one, number two, and thought, okay, usually, uh, you know, the ideas start running out, you know, after that, or you want to do something else. Um, but then I had good response from number two, and, you know, jokingly, oh, when's number three coming, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So I did number three, and uh, I thought it, I would treat that one differently. Um, uh, I, I dedicate that a little bit to RSA. Uh, have a lot of time for RSA. He was a dear friend of mine, um, and so I include uh, Nicaea, which he included in Daystar. I, I took a few chords out of a lovely name and put them into the last movement of that. I ended it quietly, like Romans Eight does, you know, and uh, so a little bit of a tribute to to RSA on that one. And uh, and then I think it was it was Rob Moy when he was in the Staff Sonsters, and this was only after number one. He said, uh, look, why don't you write four? Then you could do a recording with them all on, you know. And, and lo and behold, that's what happened. Great stuff. And uh, as I said, we could talk more yeah. about uh, the music in detail. And perhaps we'll be able to do that at some point. But my last question for you now uh, in the more serious segment here is, uh, in all of those years of music making, what role has that music played in developing your faith? Well, I'm, I'm so aware whenever I compose or play, I'm always, or conduct, as a bandmaster, I've always been aware of the words, of the tunes that I uh, associate with whatever tunes we're playing. And, uh, and to get absolutely wrapped up into the beautiful uh, sentiment of the words, and to play music that totally uh, sits in harmony with those words, has a real impact on me as a, as a person. Um, sadly, I had a few years out of the army um, and I was helped back from there, I guess, um, by, um, it was a household troops band that asked me to write a piece of music. Um, and I, I wrote a piece called Metamorphosis. And um, that, that helped me um, come back to feeling uh, those places that I had before uh, in terms of my place in in the Christian context and um, so it was my, my spiritual life has been uh, in, in many ways affected by many of the songs in the songbook many verses from scripture that have been set to music um, for example sing for joy um, you know, before I wrote Sing for Joy, I probably couldn't recite Psalm 95, but uh, now I can get pretty close to it. <laughs> and it, it's music that has that has brought the words uh, into my thinking and into my uh, actually being as a person that uh, that has kept me where I am and influenced me where I am today. So uh, without music, I would not have had the um, the magnet to to pull those words into my into my being, and uh, and it's through those words of song and scripture that uh, that have influenced me as a Christian. Thank you for your openness and honesty there. And now we're 
Now for something completely different, as it's been said many times. We move on to our um, quirky quickfire questions. So these mostly will be sort of one-word answers. Uh, some of them are quite normal. Some of them, as you'll hear, um, are a bit off the wall. But that's how we like it here. Do my scored. <laughs> First question, quite a normal one. What's your favourite Salvation Army band piece? Eternal Presence. Uh, have you got a favourite symphony? Uh, Enigma Variations, not a symphony, but it's an orchestral piece. Okay, well, I'll take those answers. Uh, have you got a favourite songster piece? Uh, one of them is Remember Me. What about a favourite vegetable? Um, peas. Uh, best variety of chocolate? Cadbury's. Uh, favourite album of all time? I think it's uh, I think it's Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story recording. Excellent. Uh, Vienna or Berlin? Uh, Vienna. Tokyo or Beijing? Tokyo. Pizza or pasta? Don't like either much, but pe uh, pizza, just about. Okay. Uh, Picasso or Monet? Uh, Monet. ISB or ISS? I'll refrain on that one. <laughs> Uh, following on from that question, then maybe I'm not sure if this is hard or easier to answer, but uh, who do you think would win in an arm wrestle, Steve Cobb or Dorothy Nanskerville? <laughs> um, uh, it's a, that's a ridiculous, uh, <laughs> that's a ridiculous thing. Um, Dorothy would be very fair and uh, allow Steve to win. <laughs> okay, maybe we'll have to set that up a live episode or something. <laughs> um, Two more questions. If you're a cat, what sort of cat would you be? A Burmese. And finally, if you were trying to hide in Ikea overnight, what item of furniture would you hide in or around? Uh, it would be a wall cabinet because the settees are not uh, too skimpy and I wouldn't be able to hide behind an Ikea settee. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much uh, for answering those quickfire questions. Richard will be joining us later in the podcast to put his band knowledge to the test in Band Mastermind. Thanks, Richard, for giving up your time to chat to me. Now it's time for our analysis. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Bruce Broughton to talk us through his piece Covenant. If you wish to follow the score whilst we chat, the score is available as always to purchase on the Salvation Army Music Index. So... Once again, I'm joined by Bruce Broughton, who's going to be doing an analysis of one of his compositions, Covenant. It was published in 1987. So, Bruce, thank you ever so much for joining us again. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Always good to be here. So, first of all, Covenant, what was the inspiration behind writing this piece? This piece was written a long time ago. Um, it was published in 87. It was probably written around 1974-75, and it was originally written for the New York um, Band Journal, which was a reduced version of the festival series. So I've made another arrangement for this. The, the New York Journal was, it was basically a sextet. Now, I, I don't know what they do now. I don't know whether they still keep that tradition up or not, but it was made for two cornets, one horn, trombone, a euphonium, and a, and a bass. Um, and all the other parts were considered additional, but you should be able to play anything from the, at least the early New York Journal for those six instruments. So I wanted to write a piece that was uh, not like all the other pieces, not like all the other Salvation Army pieces, not because they were bad, just because 
there were a lot of guys who did that well. And I figured anybody who wanted to play them could play them. That, that's all available. I was young. I was in my 20s or early 30s uh, when I did this. I thought, okay, so I want to write a piece that has a lot of energy that uses some of the stuff I've been learning here while I've been working at CBS. That's an important part. And that is very American, whatever that is. And we'll work with six instruments that has enough power that can be played well for six instruments. So I use, I use this tune, Covenant, which is an American folk tune. One of the things about Covenant that, that's unusual, um, given hymn tunes, but not unusual for tunes themselves and not unusual at all for American tunes, is that it's a pentatonic tune. It only has five, five tones. playing those all in the black keys, right? So, that's a, so it only has five, five tones. Um, it's a fabulous tune, fabulous tune, very strong. It's great when it's played loud. It's great when it's played very softly. I mean, to me, it, was, it had everything in it. And then I was going to write something that would set this piece off. So what are some of the musical influences behind this piece? One is Aaron Copeland, not probably for what you think it is, but one was Aaron Copeland, who was the uh, inventor sort of of the American style. And um, another one was Elton John. And another one was a guy named Mort Stevens. Uh, Mort Stevens was the guy who wrote the Hawaii Five-O theme. And there's some Hawaii Five-O kind of music in here. Um, Mort was very, um, very energetic and very dramatic and very exciting when he wrote. His music was just really, very, very, very inventive. And I, you know, I picked up a few things and every, every once in a while I would, I would um, try it out myself. What I liked about Elton John was I was under the influence of his first album. I liked the way he had more than two or three chords. There was a time when, when pop music was still uh, interesting harmonically. And because he, was a, because he was a good pianist and he had, you could actually tell he had had some training. Um, a lot of the moves he had were just, it was really, I liked the way his songs were. He also had fabulous arrangements by Paul Buckmaster, which didn't hurt at all. Um, but the, but the, um, the way some of his tunes, they were so melodic and yet they were, they just moved in a really cool way. I, I like that. And then Aaron Copeland, the thing that, that I used Aaron Copeland for as an inspiration was in a lot of his pieces, but specifically in a piece called Appalachian Spring, which was also made for a very small group. A lot of Appalachian Spring is only written for one or two lines. Um, there's a, I don't know if I can play it. Something like that. That's a famous part in Appalachian Spring. That's all there is. I mean, that's, that's it. It's not, it's not like that. It's just, and a lot of his stuff is very direct because there's not anything else with it. Uh, Appalachian Spring is based on a very simple motive, just a, um, just a triad, superimposed upon itself. And uh, very often he will resort to just melody and harmony, no counterpoint, you know, and very often he has two lines going and nothing else, no supporting stuff. So it's very clean, very direct, very energetic. And what I took from that as being, um, somewhat typically American, okay? Because I, I, I think of American music for good or for bad as being, at least the best stuff is really energetic and Copeland sort of stands on the list, along with Leonard Bernstein, Gershwin and people like that. So musically, it's sort of tritone based.
It's, it's a major minor tritone thing. I, I've got the score here and I can probably fake it. So it starts with this minor thing. And then a tritone. Okay, the tritone being a B flat chord. I'm doing this concert, not, not in B flat C. Uh, B, flat, B flat chord going to an E chord. Okay, that was used a lot by Rimsky-Korsakov and early Stravinsky and the Russian Orientalists. I mean, that's nothing new, right? But it also happened to have, it also happened to have this minor third on top. So it was a way of harmonizing that opening figure. And of course, to start with just one note, gets everybody's attention, you know, and then you don't give them a chance, you give them an extra note. Well, right now you got everybody's attention. So then you, you harmonize it, say, well, okay, that, that was my tune, here's my harmonization. And then you say, okay, I did the minor thing, so now I'm gonna do the major thing. So it's the, it's the tune, it's the harmonization. And then it goes on from that, and that whole figure. It's just based on that opening opening figure. It's all in unison. So it's very powerful. And um, it, it's in, in the low brass. Finally, everybody plays it. So it's just big, 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 big. Okay, so we have one, two, three, four, five, five bars there with no harmonization, just unison. And it's powerful, it's really big. And then after that, comes this little tune. And then we're back to all the noise. So this piece is a contrast between <clears throat> that very rowdy, very aggressive opening minor third with the uh, tritone harmonizations and this very beautiful, extremely diatonic, actually not even diatonic, just pentatonic tune with all its, its harmonies. Um, it basically just plays back and forth between the, those two elements. And sometimes the, um, the opening third motif is, is very quiet as though it's kind of lurking in the background as the other tune is sitting very sweetly on top. Now, the tune is known as covenant and the words that are usually associated with are, have been described as the most gruesome words in hymnology. There is a fountain filled with blood. Um, I have no association with the words in this piece. It's, I mean, you can do any other kind of word you want, anything, but it's basically about the tune. And the idea of the covenant, I can, I can get behind the idea of the covenant too. But that's the only non-musical association I have with this. It's primarily a way of being able to make this beautiful tune come forward. And I, I would like to think that at the end of the piece, when the, when the um, tune comes in all its glory, and with a little bit of... Um, very pretty harmonic rhythmic movement in, in, the, in the, um, the accompaniment that it shows off this glorious tune to, um, to, its, best, to its best ability. Um, there's still all this kind of salt and pepper approach because the piece is still aggressive, aggressive. It has a, uh, in sort of a development section, it actually has, um, which I thought was very modern at the time, it actually has um, clusters. Yeah, like if uh, if anybody's following along with the score, if they listen to this some other time, a couple of bars before M is in mother, there's a, a big cluster chord that, that goes down. 
This was like Hawaii 5-0 territory. big thing with the, the timpani and the snare drum going bum, 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 which was a real Hawaii 5-0 lick. But I'd never seen it in a brass band piece before. So I thought, okay, so now we're going to bring that um, aggressive commercial world into this kind of music, because what better than a brass group to be able to play this stuff? So the uh, the percussion, I, ha I don't remember who told me this. Um, certainly he didn't himself, because I was too young when he passed away. But my grandfather, the composer, Brigitte Broughton, um, was, uh, you know, he was very good at writing marches, particularly. But I don't think percussion was a thing that he particularly knew what to do with. He gave him kind of perfunctory lines. And in those days, the snare drum was basically going bump, da dump, da dump, da dump, da 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 dump, sort of like the horns, you know, kind of boring. And um, Later, when I studied with Emil Soderstrom, I don't think that Soderstrom had a big appreciation of percussion. And I don't think, frankly, that anybody writing for the army or for brass bands in general had much of an interest in percussion. They were just kind of like little things that play the rhythm that sit in the back. And it was basically a snare drum and a bass drum, usually tuned badly and sounding kind of tight and thuddy. Um, eventually, by the time this thing got published, um, timpani were being used by some people, two timpani, and because um, it's in the score, which I guess I put in. Um, but the, in this piece and in a lot of other pieces that I did around this time, percussion became more important. It became as though it was a separate voice. And um, the stuff, it, it was not meant to be sitting in the background just duplicating the horn section. Um, it was meant to be an actually an aggressive player to be able to push the, push the music. Um, the opening of my arrangement to Hosea is like that. I think, as I remember, it starts again with this kind of Hawaii 5-0, you know, and gets everybody off to a big start. Um, so that was my contribution. And then after that little Hawaii 5-0 drum thing, kind of distorting the tune a little bit, making it just a little left of center. Definitely not the polite um, pentatonic version that it, that it began as, but this very aggressive um, bass going on. Um, the afterbeats are actually just the bass played against itself. One thing that I did try to stay careful with in both versions, the New York version and this version, is the separation between bright and mellows. Um, it was Eric Lydson who pointed out to me, but I think I was in a class, that there are basically uh, two kinds of um, timbres in the brass band. There's the bright, which is the cornets and the trombones, and there are the mellows, which are the horns, the baritones, the euphoniums, and the bass. And so that's basically your contrast. It's not an awful lot. Uh, there is more contrast, actually, in that though the horns are very similar to the um, cornets, the, um, you, well, actually, no, in the brass band, they're all pretty similar. In, in an orchestra, the tubas and the horns sound different, but they're still bright and mellow. And I found, actually, in orchestration in general, even with woodwinds, there are brights and mellows. The brights would be the oboes and the bassoons. The mellows would be the clarinets and, and the flutes. 
Um, and even in the strings, you can make a case for the violins and, and the cellos being the bright ones and the violas being less bright and the basses least bright. So there is this, um, in each food group, in each category of, of the orchestra, and particularly in the brass band, um, you have this, this one element that you can easily play against, not to mention the variety of mutes that brass offer. Uh, lately, it's gotten to my attention that when you use a mute, you're basically using a different sound. So I think of the mutes as being, I mean, now I do, not, not when I was doing this, I didn't understand it at the time. Now I think of the mutes as being really a different, a different group. It's like you have the cornets, and then you have the cornets playing straight mutes, and then you have the cornets playing in cup mutes, and then you have the cornets playing in bucket mutes, and you have all these, you know, harmony mutes, and you have all these different things, and they all are, they're all cornets, but they all sound very different from each other. You know, it's kind of hard, if you didn't know what they were actually doing, it would probably be hard for somebody just listening to it on, on the radio to figure out what all these instruments are. And now, of course, the mutes have become so, um, so widespread, and this was not the case when this piece was written, that every instrument in the brass band has a mute. The tubas have always had mutes, but now not only the trombones and the tubas, but also even the, even the horns. So everybody gets a chance to be somebody else. So you have even more color now to work with than, than we had when I was writing this piece. But now it was the brights against the, the melons. Um, there was a, yeah, like in this opening section, Even there, I exploit the brights and the mellows because the brights have the strong notes. And it's the baritones, the euphonium, and the, and the tuba, or the basses that go. And they there go, whereas the trombones go. So even there, there's a strong accent of this bright against, against a pretty rowdy mellow. So this piece is full of that uh, competition between the brights and the mellows. Then there's a section with uh, the tune played in a very pretty way with very simple harmonies. And you hear some of the Elton John <laughs> uh, influences kind of moving around underneath, you know, make it, it's all very, there, there's no counterpoint. It's all very harmonic and, and rhythmic and, and it plays against this, what I, I still think is a gorgeous tune. And then it comes up to this great big finale where um, I divide the, the top cornets. Now, all of you who are listening to this and all of you who have ever played this piece, um, there is a really big error in the score. Um, there is a symbol thing written in here, a bar before Q, which should actually go on Q. quite understood why people didn't move it, but I've heard recordings with this mistake in it. I guess they figured if the composer wrote it, he really wanted it. Well, the composer really did write it, and he really did want it, but he didn't want it there. Well done to Andrew Blythe and the Enfield Sizzle Band for correctly getting right that errata in our excerpt there. It's a really big moment. I even use Fortissimo, which I rarely use. I use Fortissimo, and that's, that's where the symbols are supposed to crash. So please, anybody who's listening and knows this piece and is planning to play it again, please make that change. Put 
the symbol crashed a bar later. And then it ends, it ends quickly, like a lot of these early pieces did. basically it, except I think it ends with a Hollywood ending. This is a very, very common um, harmonization to end pieces. So actually it's a cliche, um, but of course I harmonize it much better than that. So it's not a cliche, it's very special in this piece. That's basically Covenant. Have you got any advice for any bands or bandmasters beginning to look at Covenant as to how you would want this piece performed? In terms of performance, the thing that I'm most anxious, not anxious about, the thing I'm most desirous of is that it was written to show off a really beautiful tune, a really, really beautiful tune, which was very simple and very elegant in the simplicity. Um, the arrangement itself that holds it is written to be pretty aggressive, and written to be very energetic. Um, the accents can really be played. Um, when you find the, the occasional fortissimo, it can be played, not blasting, but it can be played strong. Um, all the figures that surround this long, beautiful tune are, tend to be short. There are these little figures that by themselves make, um, uh, make, make some sort of a background. And, um, and that's basically it. If, if the tune ends up being beautiful and satisfying by the end, then you, then you probably played the piece right. I've heard this piece for years and it's one that I like. I, I never really got tired of it. I guess because the tune, I picked the tune really well. I'm glad that it still gets played because that means that somebody else likes it too. And I, and I really think it still holds its own as a really unique piece, as does all your music in the, the history of Salvation Army music. A really, really unique and fantastic sound world. I know it's, yeah. as a player, it's always a joy to play and as a listener, always a joy to hear. Fascinating stuff indeed, and music that still comes fresh 40 or 50 years on. Thanks for your time and insight, Bruce. Now it's time for you to get involved with Band Mastermind at home. In our last episode, I played a short excerpt of a piece and asked you to guess what it was and where it was from. Well done to all of those who guessed the correct answer. Warcry by Dorothy Gates. Congratulations also to Fred and Bessie, who was the first to let us know the correct answer, and also takes home the extra bonus brownie points for guessing the correct album which it came from, which was Pressing Onwards by the New York Staff Band. I would have also allowed All Glorious, as it's the same recording featured on that album also. For today's Band Mastermind at Home, I'm going to read an excerpt from a CD sleeve note. Send us a message on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram if you can guess which piece this episode is describing. And extra bonus brownie points if you can guess the album which these sleeve notes are taken from. They read as follows. In his introduction to the score of this meditation, the composer writes, It is important that I consciously and continually surrender every new thing that becomes part of who I am and what I do. 
This music is an exploration of the notion that as Christians, we should surrender not only everything we have to Jesus, but everything that we are as well. If you think you know, then let us know on our various social media outlets. So this brings us on to our final segment of this episode of Fully Scored, and of course that is Band Mastermind. So just to remind you of the rules, Richard, you'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions correctly as you can. Currently we have Andrew Blythe at the top of the leaderboard on nine points, so I guess that's your target. Oh, <laughs> got to get him off. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, and one minute 30 seconds is exactly the same time as it takes the ISB to play Jubilee minus a few repeats. So, Richard Phillips, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? I am. Your time starts now. Which Salvation Army Commissioner wrote the march Ceaseless Service? Host. Uh, Not quite. Uh, What colour band caps do the core wear at Southsea? Uh, White. Correct. Who's the current principal trombone of the ISB? Andrew Justice. Correct. What was the name of Dean Goffin's father himself, a Salvation Army brass composer? Uh, Henry. Correct. How many tunes are in the current Salvation Army tune book? Uh, tunes. Uh, 980. You're very close, but not quite. Who was the bandmaster of the Amsterdam staff bands uh, when they took part in the Brass International Spectacular at the Royal Thompson Hall in Canada in 1994? Uh, oh gosh, 1994. Uh, Howard Evans. Uh, incorrect, I'm afraid. Who was Ray Stedman Allen's Cornet solo Rhapsody on Negro Spirituals written for? Um, is it Ray Todd? It wasn't, I'm afraid. Uh, What was the name of the Salvation Army camp that for many years hosted the German Territorial Music School? Uh, I have no idea. Okay, we'll take a pass on that. In what year did uh, Tottenham Siddle Band relocate to Enfield? Uh, Should know this, shouldn't I? 1982. Okay, not quite, and I'm afraid that is your time up there. Uh, That gives you... A total correct of three, which isn't a bad score at all for band masterminds. Uh, and I'll just whiz through the um, answers. <laughs> I'll just whiz through the answers you didn't quite get correct there. So the Salvation Army Commissioner who wrote the work, the March Ceaseless Service, was Stanley E. Dittmer. There are 958 tunes in the current tune book, so really not a million miles off there. Um, the bandmaster of the Amsterdam staff band, uh, when they took part in the International Spectacular, was uh, Peter Ailing. Oh, Peter, right. Uh, Ray Stenman Allen's Cornet solo, Rhapsody on Negro Spirituals, was written for James Williams. Oh, right. uh, the name of the Salvation Army camp in Germany that hosted the German and Territorial Music School for many years was Camp Plom. I wouldn't have done that. And the uh, final question, what year did Tottenham Sizzle Band relocate to Enfield? It was 1973. So there we go. Long way out. (laughs) So that concludes uh, that segment of Band Mastermind. 
We've now arrived at our destination. All alight here, please. We thank you for joining us on this journey, and we hope that you've learnt something new or been encouraged along the way. Make sure to follow us on our social media and let us know if you enjoyed today's episode, or even if you learnt anything new. If you did enjoy this pod, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share us with your friends. Big thanks go to Richard Phillips and Bruce Broughton for giving up your time to chat to me. Thank you also to our producer Simon Gash, as always, for editing all the pieces together and making sure we had all the pieces to put together in the first place. Thank you also to you, our listeners. We hope to see you in our next episode. Goodbye and God bless. (laughs) 